Hey, Kyle. Hi, Ra. Nice to be with you again. So uh, what place does tactile queuing have in Pilates now, post-pandemic? It's a very loaded question. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, should we, should we, I guess my question is, you know, sh- should we reevaluate the value of tactile queuing? Well, I would like to, I would like to, you know, I would like to reevaluate the value of tactile queuing uh, because I used to be really into it. Like I remember teaching uh, instructor you know, courses back in 2010 and saying to people, I oh, like if, if you don't let me touch my clients, I basically can't teach. And now I never, ever, ever touch my clients. Like, and <laughs> so I've really changed my position on that. And I used to think uh, hands-on cueing was super just integral to Pilates. Like it just, you can't, you know, it's like, like, it would be like saying, go get a massage without getting touched. You know, it's like, <laughs> you, you can't do it. Uh, but yeah, I've totally changed my view. So yeah, I'm interested to know what your views are. And I, I'm, you know, I'm not sure if we agree or disagree on this topic. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to have a, a chat about this. So so wh- where do you stand? Is this something you've thought about much? Um, what's your well, position? Okay. First of all, yes. Um, leading up to this conversation, knowing what the topic was, I had to also confess to myself that I used to put very high value on tactile queuing. Like, I would say pre-pandemic and even before that, um, like, I was one of those people who felt like touch was such an important part of how you communicate anything to anybody. And I'm pretty sure I may have even said at one point in leading teacher training that like a session isn't a session unless you've touched your client at least once. And I share your full three or 180 on that where now I never touch anybody or not never. I very rarely ever touch my clients. Um, And the questions that I kind of like had in my mind as preparation for this conversation, which I think um, might be fun jumping off points depending on what you're thinking is um, my my questions for myself now around tactile cueing are, is it actually important? And if it is actually important, if and so, like, when is it actually meaningful? As in, like, when does it have or can it have high impact, meaning help really transform something for a mover? And then Also, this idea of like how high or low we should really value tactile cueing. And what I'm thinking about that is I'm thinking about actual like learning outcomes. Like, does it really truly change the quality or depth with which a person can experience something? Or sub question, is that just my perception of feeling like I'm being more involved? Like, at what point does tactile cueing become an overmanagement of our client's movement experience is kind of where I stand with the conversation now. Mm. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to say, I think, uh, I think they're right off the bat. I think uh, tactile queuing really doesn't have much of a place in terms of improving learning of movement skills. Uh, but I think it does have a, a value potentially from just a human connection standpoint, um, you know, 
from a therapeutic standpoint, I'm not talking about like massage as such. I'm talking about like the the friendly hand on the shoulder type, you know, um, thing. And for for some people, maybe in a rehab situation, or maybe you know older people or people who have become isolated for you know because they can't participate in activities because they've got some kind of illness or injury or whatever. It's like that might be a, the only social interaction they have all week, and so a, a bit of a you know. A, um, figurative, you know, hug slash hand on the shoulder might be a very valuable thing for those people, but not from a motor learning standpoint, more just from a companionship and social support standpoint. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think that one of the things I thought a lot about in kind of trying to organize my thoughts around this conversation is that for me, I have to be honest about the fact that I'm biased and I come from a dance background. So I was pre-programmed to believe that touch is like so important because that's how you communicate. Like that was my premise coming into the Pilates world. Um, and now I think that what you're saying about social connection is true and really important. But at this point, I'm at this stage where if my clients want a hug, like I will just give them a hug, but it doesn't mean that my hands need to be all over them in their session. Yeah, I agreed. Um, so let's let's talk about, I mean, I, I'm assuming that everybody listening to this is going to you know, be in fairly unanimous agreement that, um, uh, you know, platonic supportive human touch can be a positive thing. Um, as, you know, so I'm not sure if it's worth spending a lot of time on that because I don't think there's there's <laughs> anyone's going to be like receiving any great revelations from near that. But I think um, what I, what I do want to delve into is the the motor learning aspect. So the you know when I was a, a, a massive advocate of touch, you know, of of tactile cueing, you know, I would have said that. The reason for that or the benefit of tactile cueing is it it helps the client to experience, you know, this the this feeling of doing the movement correctly so that they can then, you know, um sort of work to recapture that feeling of doing it correctly, you know, when you're not giving them a tactile cue. And that helps them accelerate their their learning or their their technique improvement. Is, is that the way that you thought of it? I think that's more or less the category that I placed it in in my mind as well. And another, just another layer to that, like I had the same sentiment, but um, something that was taught to me that I embodied for a long time was also the idea that when you are physically touching your clients, it's information for you. So like you're touching them, I mean, to give them the tactile cue, but also to feel how sweaty are they? Are they breathing intense? Like there was this implication that it was also a way for you to get a read on what their body was experiencing, which I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about that idea now. That's interesting. I mean, I guess, I guess now that you say, hearing you say that, I guess I probably used to think that as well. Like I don't, it's not something I kind of would have consciously said, but I get now I think back, I think, yeah, I probably was thinking like, Oh, I can feel which muscles are working or I can feel, how much tension there is or, or, or whatever. Um, and I, after reading literature over the last decade on uh, manual therapy and 
the, the sort of validity of, of manual assessment and palpation and stuff, I'm now like thoroughly convinced that I was completely deluding myself, you know, when I thought I could perceive certain things happening or not Agreed. happening. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we could talk about that literature a bit later if, 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 you know, if we need to go there, but, um, all right. So the, 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 the two way communication, um, and what would you have said is the most, like, would you have said, you know, you back in the day when you used to sort of touch all your clients and, and use tactile cueing all the time, you know, what would you, would you, would you think of each of those things as being equally important or is, you know, was there one that had more primacy? Oh, you mean like tactile cueing for the client's benefit versus me gathering information? Um, right. I mean, it's all for the client's benefit, obviously, but you know, for, 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 for guidance as opposed to, you know, receiving you know, feedback on how they're doing, you know, for yourself. Yeah. Well, so in a post pandemic world now, and as somebody who's like taught online quite a bit, I completely disregard the need for touching somebody to have information about what is going on in their body. Um, because I think there are a lot of other better <laughs> cues for that or signals as in like, if somebody looks like they're starting to have muscular failure or really struggling with something that is better information for me than laying my hands on them and being like, Oh, you're breathing really heavily. Yeah. Like no shit. You're working out. Um, but but I mean, can can you tell if someone's breathing heavily without touching them? I'm yes, pretty sure I, I can. can. Um, it's a really good skill to have as a Pilates instructor. Uh, so I think that that makes me feel like the thing I thought that was more important was actually like for the client's benefit. Um, and I think this lends itself a little bit to this old value set, which I definitely experienced in working with my mentors, and I'm sure that I emulated this as well which is that, and this is kind of like the props conversation we had, but that part of the value of what your clients are paying for is your hands on them because how could they possibly grow without your physical actual guidance? And that's a very old right. mentality, but I think, it's still, I think it still lives in the Pilates industry for sure. And I have definitely been someone who walked in those shoes as a teacher. Yeah, and I think that comes back to the notion, which I think is incorrect, that the value that we provide resides in the things that we do and how hard we work and how much we care and and what skills we have and our education, you know, basically all, all attributes of us, you know. So whereas I now believe, and I used to believe that as well, but I now believe that the value we provide is entirely related to the results and experience that the client has, totally without regard for anything that we do or don't do. So it's like if I come to a session with you and I have some great, amazing revelation, I'm double as strong and double as flexible and my pain's gone, I don't give a shit how hard you worked. Like that doesn't come into it, you know, or what degrees you have or any of that. It's like all I care is like, my back doesn't hurt anymore and I can touch my toes. Yeah, agreed. And and the other part of that that I'll just name too that I think is important for any listeners or anybody out there who's also had this experience um, I used to come home physically exhausted from like just being on top of people all day, like facilitating all of the beautiful like tactile cues and blah, blah, blah. It's like physically, it physically makes your job a lot more um, difficult. And I think that it's while I have experienced being taught that way and also have, you know, emulated trying to teach that way. 
Um, I don't think it's the most sensible or sustainable thing for you as an instructor for your health and your longevity in teaching either. Hey, I want to I want to sort of dive into this idea of or not uh, in, into you know, looking more closely at this idea of uh, tactile cueing being valuable for learning. <clears throat> and I want to start by thinking about the concept of what even do we mean by learning. And um, in in uh, in Pilates, we we say tactile cueing, and 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 uh, but in the in the broader sort of exercise science and movement science world, they talk about motor learning. The motor just means movement. Um, so that's like when cueing is like the words that we say or gestures that we use. So those are just kind of uh, various kind of ways that we aim to facilitate people to learn. You know to improve their movement skill. Okay. So in other words, we're trying to improve motor learning and cueing is, you know, verbal cueing is one way. Props is another way, you know, uh, imagery, tactile cueing, like they're all all different. Also, you can do things like, um, things like the structure of your session, how variable your practice is, whether you break your practice up or do it all in blocks, like all of these things can influence, you know, the relative difficulty, uh, how often you give people feedback. So there are lots and lots of factors that influence motor learning of which cueing is one of those factors. Um, so the broader literature you know, talks about motor learning, and so I'm, I'm just going to say motor learning um, from, you know, <laughs> from now on for the rest of this conversation. Um, and and in, uh, in the motor learning literature, they don't talk about tactile cueing. Uh, they say manual guidance, right? Manual means by hand because main is French for hand, uh, and you know, it's like you put your hands on someone and you guide them into the correct position. And so the two kind of theoretical under so there are there are there are there are two sort of broadly speaking two kind of theoretical approaches to motor learning in the literature, and they're quite um, I wouldn't say in opposition, but they're they're almost uh, mutually exclusive, and one is called. I can't really uh, – usually they call it like performance instruction. So basically what this assumes is that there is an ideal technique, right, and that the instructor's job or the coach's job is to, you know, to guide the student towards a more ideal technique, right? And we can do that many by verbal instructions, by you know, manual guidance, by, you know, using props to position them in the correct position, et cetera. Um, and – and that you know, the closer the student, appro- you know, more closely the student approaches that ideal technique, then the better their result will be. And whether whatever the task is, whether it's like exercising for strength or flexibility or grace or throwing a ball or you know whatever it might be. And so that's one one sort of broadly one approach which says that there is some kind of ideal technique, and we should you know, coach our students towards that. And the the other approach. Um, which uh, it, some, sometimes they call it the, the constrained action hypothesis. Uh, sometimes they call it, gee, what do they call it? Uh, the, I'm blanking on the name, but it doesn't really matter. Um, where it's basically a... A, a, the theory is 
that there is no one ideal technique for any given movement. If that's a ballet pirouette or if it's throwing a shot put or if it's hitting a tennis ball or doing a roll-up, because every single human has different physical attributes. We all have different combinations of, you know, torso length relative to thigh length relative to tibia length, you know, weight distribution in our bodies, flexibility at different joint muscle origins and insertions vary in position, relative fiber type composition, you know, the relative, you know, weight of our skeletal system relative to our muscular system. You know, like there are so many variables in each human that, uh, you know, for me to execute the most efficient roll-up possible, as in like using the least muscular effort, is going to require me to use a different strategy than for you to do that because we have all of those things are different. You know, your thigh length is different to my thigh length. Your, where you hold your body weight in your torso relative to your legs is probably a bit different, etc. right? And so if we both do the same exact technique, we're not going to get the exact same result because we have all of those differences, right? So my ideal technique will be there is an ideal technique for each person, but it's not the same ideal technique. And yes, it'll look somewhat similar, right? So your roll-up shouldn't look like a swan dive, you know. But, <laughs> but it's but it's it's not it's not going to look exactly like my roll-up or anyone else's roll-up. Um and so what that school of thought says is that actually uh rather than giving uh instructions on technique, the best way for people to learn is for them to have knowledge of the outcome of their movement, right? So if the goal is to roll up with the least possible effort and the most fluidity, okay, well, we need feedback on like how effortful was that and how fluid was that. And then we just need, then we just need to practice without necessarily receiving instruction on, you know, which part you need to press into which part or which muscles you need to activate or whatever. But just if you do a lot of repetitions with feedback on whether that was a, fe- a good repetition or not, then you get better, right? And so broadly speaking, there are these two schools of thought and the manual guidance really falls obviously into the ideal technique school of thought where you know there is an ideal technique and the coach's job is to guide the client or the instructor's job is to guide the client, you know, so that their body parts are in the right, you know, positions for that ideal technique. Yeah. So I, I think that the, the, the thing there that sort of surprised me when I really, when I first learned it was even the concept that like there's such a thing as an ideal technique, the fact of that being a theory rather than just like a God given fact, you know, that was like, what? <laughs> there's like, someone's questioning the fact that there is, you know, ideal technique might not actually exist. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. I mean, presumably you've come across that, and um, yeah, I'd love love to know your thoughts. Um, I have. It's been a minute for me because my brain is now going back to my dance education life, where we did talk a lot about this. Because a big part of getting a degree in dance education is learning about motor learning, because what you're teaching is essentially like how to dance. Um, and I think that I fall into the category. I lean. Um, I don't think that there is an ideal technique to do anyone like I think that there can be multiple modes of trying to achieve the same outcome but that every single body like you said is not going to go through the same process of getting there for all of the reasons that you listed Um, but that if you can give somebody the direction or like the um, 
desired outcome. And then the feedback portion to me is probably not just you telling them through verbal cues, but it's also them having success, right? Like feeling like you're like, okay, press your heels down into the mat. Let's separate your feet mat with distance when you try to do your roll up. Does that help? Like, and you can, or whatever the problem solving is to help them get through the movement. And then it's the success that also then is teaching them more in their own body about how they can do that movement um, more effectively. And something I actually was thinking about, and I think this connects and you can me otherwise because it's been a minute since i've been in this research but one of the things we also talk a lot about in the dance education world is we talk a lot about mirror neurons um and mirror neurons are essentially like they're a sensory motor cell that's located in the brain and it's they're activated whenever um an individual an individual performs an action or they observe another person observing an action and this is why humans are so good at imitating each other which is why this is how like babies learn how to make facial expressions and this is a big part, I think, often of teaching movement because um, actually, hilariously, I don't demonstrate anymore either. But uh, it can be a really big part of teaching movement because it's kind of like this monkey see, monkey do situation. Um, and what I would say that maybe connects with the idea of mirror neurons is that in that instance, you have an, an idea in your mind of what the desired outcome is. And so having that can help you work closer to achieving that desired outcome. Yeah, I think all of that, um, all, essentially all of the research that I've read on motor learning comes down to uh, knowledge of results, the result of the movement, um, and and the, the learner, you know, the person learning the movement, knowing the result of their movement in comparison to the desired result. Okay. So you want to achieve X, you know, where you landed was here. Okay. And so whether they, are, and, and so there are many ways that, that that feedback can be achieved. Like you could verbally say, Hey, you, you your legs were you know, too straight or whatever. Like you can give feedback like that, or you could show a, a demonstration. Like you could show a video of someone doing it. And if you're teaching a group class, even if you're not demonstrating, people are looking around at the other people in the class, right? So they're still activating those mirror neurons. And so, you know, they can look at someone else doing it, then look at a video of themselves doing it and notice, you know, unconsciously or consciously notice the differences. Um, they could, you know, go for a certain sensation. So let's, or, you know, sensory, um, like, uh, evidence, like, okay, can you, can you, you know, avoid bumping the carriage on the stopper as you return? You know, can you make the straps go in a perfect circle? Those types of, you know, so, so like basically any thing, whether it's verbal, visual, you know, tactile, imagery, auditory, whatever, as long as people, as long as the person practicing the movement knows, okay, here's what I'm going for. Here's, here's what I'm trying. Here's what it should look like, feel like, sound like, whatever. And like, okay, and here's where I landed on that last rep, right? So that tells me like if I'm throwing a basketball and trying to get into a basketball hoop, if I don't know if I hit or missed or if I missed like which direction I missed in, it's like, well, that doesn't help me get better, right? But if I can see, oh, I'm consistently falling short, oh, well, I just have to throw it a bit harder and bam, that's going to solve it, right? So as long as I know where, you know, where I landed in relation to what I'm trying to achieve, you know, that's... No, that's called knowledge of results in in the literature, and basically, the literature is very consistent that when people have knowledge of results, they learn you know significantly better 
than when they have either no knowledge of results or whether they have just, uh, instead of knowledge of results, they get uh, like uh, feedback on their technique, right? So if I'm trying to throw a basketball in a hoop, right, and I'm blindfolded, so I don't know if the basketball went in the basket or not, but you say, oh, you know, push a bit harder with your right arm, right? That's much less helpful than me going, oh, I missed to the right, you know, and and me being able to sort of correct for that without necessarily thinking about the technique per se, but just thinking about, like, I want the ball to go a bit more to the left. Yeah. So, okay, you've triggered a lot of thoughts in my mind, and this is going to be like a little side conversation, but I promise it's going to loop back to what you just said and Pilates ultimately. So I went down a rabbit hole because I was on Google Scholar, like trying to just see what is available in terms of research on tactile cueing. And I didn't, I lost track of my mission and I fell down another rabbit hole and read what I thought was a really interesting journal article um, that was actually written by the Journal of the Visual Impaired and, or Visual, Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness. And it was about, it was an article about a compilation of studies, these educators, these researchers who work with blind children. And they were looking at like tactile modeling and physical guidance as instructionary strategies in physical activity for kids who are blind or visually impaired. So these are kids who like can't see, which is why I was interested because I was like, oh, how is tactile cueing being used in this environment? Um, and I won't go through like the depths of the detail because there's a lot in there, but basically they were talking about with blind or impaired students, um, there, when you don't have a certain level of success with verbal or visual cueing, um, they are suggesting that you use these two pedagogical techniques, which are tactile modeling and physical guidance. And the way that they define the two differences is that physical guidance involved like performing a really like literally putting the person's body into position. So if you were performing a, or trying to teach a kid how to dive into a pool, you would literally bend their knees for them. You would bring their arms overhead. You would like put their body into the position. And that was physical guidance. And again, this is a child who can't see. So they're just like taking tactile cues and verbal cues. And then tactile modeling was like letting the student physically either inspect a demonstrator or an object. So an example that they gave was like trying to teach a visually impaired student how to swing a baseball bat, which involved like having the student's hands on the demonstrator's hips so that they could feel the movement outcome, the desired movement outcome essentially of that person's hips. So it outlined all of these things. And then the reason it was interesting to me and the reason that it connects to Pilates in my brain and what you were just discussing in terms of motor learning is that they, the researchers, the educators concluded that like, these are all really great techniques for teaching, but like, ultimately, um, you want to like, get to a place, if you need to use these types of tactile cues or techniques to teach a student something great, but the ultimate goal is to get them to a place where they're physically knowledgeable enough in their body where they can do it in response to verbal cueing essentially like not you tactile cueing they were naming tactile cueing as like a mode for helping this person learn something but then also identifying that it was not the mode that they wanted them to stay in forever and while mm -hmm. i don't currently work with any visually impaired or blind people what i think tends to happen in pilates land is we never move away from the tactile cues like we just keep giving them but and 
um, I find that, I guess, amusing a little bit in reading this like, article about blind and visually impaired students, because I was like, even for the blind and visually impaired students, the long-term goal is to get them to a place where they're not relying on tactile cues, which makes me feel like it's very obvious that that should be the same goal for anyone who is not visually impaired or blind. Yeah, 100. That's interesting. I haven't read any of that literature, so that was interesting. Um, the the there is like in the in the literature on physical guidance, uh, what I've dug up is that you know when studies look at physical guidance, so it's like manual guidance, you know, people sort of putting their hands on somebody to help them find the correct position versus um, technique instructions like verbal instructions, like lift your elbow more or you know push off your heel more or whatever, versus. Uh, results-based instructions like hit the ball in an arc, you know, or contact the bat with the bottom half of the ball, something like that. So the instructions that focus your attention outside your body, so not not focusing your attention on what any of your body parts are doing. So in those three kind of situations, uh, consistently the externally focused cues, you know, like uh, you know, hit the ball in an arc or contact the bat with the lower half of the ball, those types of things produce better learning, uh, but not necessarily better performance in the short term. So just to quickly define those two terms, in motor learning performance means like how good you did the skill like on one occasion, Um, and whereas learning is a relatively permanent change in skill over time as a result of practice. So we can perform, you know, better or worse on any given day as a result of like how stressed we are, you know, how aroused we are, like physiologically, uh, you know, how tired we are, you know, who's in the room, um, <laughs> lots of how motivated we are, whatever it might be. Um, so performance fluctuates, but skill is a relatively, you know, learning leads to a relatively permanent change in skill such that performance, you know, on average improves over time. So the point here is that when we give manual guidance, performance improves. So if, if I want you to, you know, do a perfect, you know, cat stretch, if I get my hands on your rib cage and push you in the right position, you're going to do a perfect cat stretch, right? Because I'm putting you in the right position. But if we do that a hundred times, the and then you come back a week later and I say, okay, I'm not going to give you any guidance now. Show me a perfect cat stretch. You won't have retained that that performance, right? So you won't actually have learned anything. You will have, I will have improved performance in the moment, but not that won't transfer to you won't own that. And the theory is, uh, the reason for that is you're not actively doing the movement yourself, right? So when I'm like pulling and pushing your rib cage into a certain position, it's like, okay, you get to feel the position, but you're not actually doing it yourself. It's a very passive experience for the learner. And the actual person doing the active, you know, uh, so like, uh, work is the practitioner, right? So it's actually the practitioner who's getting practice of creating a perfect cat stretch, not the learner. Whereas when I, when, if I just say, Hey, okay, Kyle, you're my Pilates student. Uh, you know, here's what cat stretch should look like. And I'll show you a picture or I, I do it myself or I say, Hey, look at Mary across the room. She's doing a really good job. Copy her. Um, or I, you know, put my hand on up above your back and I say, can you push your back into my hand? Um, you know, Either way, if you know that, you know, I say, look in the mirror, can you make a round shape with the back of your T-shirt there? Um, 
you know, either way, you get the knowledge of results, but you, you're going to experiment with different ways of achieving that. And in the moment, your cat stretch might look a bit herky-jerky and clunky as you kind of experiment with different strategies to achieve the results. And you might not copy Mary perfectly the first five times you do it, but pretty soon you're going to get the hang of it and you'll retain that way better because you've actively engaged in the problem-solving process of how do I achieve this you know, movement in my body, given my torso length, flexibility, strength, muscle insertions, et cetera. And you will have, you know, your premotor cortex will problem solve that for you. But if I'm just grabbing your rib cage and pulling you or pushing you into a certain position, your premotor cortex is essentially silent, you know, through that whole process. So it's just basically offline. Yeah. I think also to add to that, um, that when you do give somebody the opportunity to go through the messiness of actually learning something, because learning is messy, like it's supposed to be, um, their, their sense of achievement is also greater because they actually have ownership over that movement in their body, meaning they have agency and a sense of self-efficacy, which I know you've talked a lot about before. Um, and I think to name for Pilates people, like, why is that important? Because it feels good <laughs> to feel like you've become successful at something. And I think that one of the things that does, I think, or at least for me, I always want my students, my clients to live somewhere in the middle of feeling really challenged and then in some form successful. And successful doesn't have to mean perfect execution of cat stretch it needs to mean you can identify how you've gotten better at that thing and you can still name things that you want to work on to make it better like that to me would be the ideal middle ground yeah and i think it also uh, comes back to well what is a perfect cat stretch and i think that's got to the answer to that has got to be well it depends why you're doing cat stretch and what you're hoping to achieve by it like okay are you somebody who's you know, super experience, your experience is like a super stiff torso and you're like, I'm always uncomfortable in my torso and I just feel like I need to move. It's like, well, a a, a perfect cat stretch just looks like you feeling better at the end of it. You know, it doesn't matter what it looks like. Um, Whereas if you're somebody for whom Pilates is a moving meditation and you know, the, the, the ideal is to get into a flow state and just exist in the moment, well, maybe searching for some you know, rhythm in the movement in between your breath and your movement and, you know, the action of the next exercise and transition, like maybe that's more important than, you know, the specific shape you make, or maybe it is the shape that you make, you know, with your spine that is, so there is, I don't think there is necessarily a single answer to how do I know if I did it right? You know, it's like, well, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. I think the question is like, well, how do you feel after you did it? Do you feel broken or do you feel better? (laughs) Hopefully the answer is you feel better. Right. And I, I, yeah, so I, I guess um, the where I've landed on this is that uh, you know the research seems to be I wouldn't say it's overwhelming, but I would say it's it's fairly consistently in it's fairly consistently in favour of uh, the in terms of those two schools of thought that like the ideal technique, there is an ideal technique and it's, it's our job as coaches or instructors to, to, to instruct our clients to achieve that ideal technique versus it, there is an ideal technique for each person, but we can't consciously know what that is because there is like almost a, you know, 
limitless number of variables that are different between each any two given people. And so it's just not possible for us to compute, you know, what what a given person's ideal technique looks like. Um, and so there is a certain absolutely value in practice and getting knowledge of how well you uh, executed each rep, like how effective each rep was at achieving whatever result you're trying to achieve. But that saying, you know, that, that feedback shouldn't necessarily be on technique. It should be on like, okay, in, based on the outcome you're trying to achieve from this movement, you know, here's where you landed in relation to that outcome. Um, so I, I definitely, uh, you know, I definitely fall on the side of the the outcome. And I did look it up and it's called differential learning that I was blanking on before, which basically just says, you know, you don't get feedback or instruction on your technique. You get feedback on like, okay, did the ball go in the hoop basically, or was it off to the right or off to the left or short or long? Um, and you just have lots of different opportunities to practice the movement in very slightly varied contexts. So maybe in the example of a roll-up, we do practice with our feet apart. We practice our feet, our feet together. We practice with hand weights. We practice without hand weights. We practice with a flex band. We practice on a real thick, soft mat. We practice on a thin, hard mat, you know. And in practicing in those multiple different contexts, maybe we practice with someone holding our feet down or feet under the sofa, you know, whatever. And in practicing all those different contexts, your premotor cortex gets like, builds up like a 3D you know, picture of how to best achieve, you know, whatever the outcome of the roll-up is. And if you say, okay, the, the outcome is, you you know, when you roll back down, there's no clunk, right? It's it's silent. <laughs> or the outcome is your, you know, the back of your T-shirt rolls up, you know, like a wave in the ocean off the, off the mat, right? Whatever the outcome is, right? Or the outcome is you get a real stretch at the, at the front of the movement when you're reaching forwards. Whatever that outcome is, you're going to uh, achieve it more effectively in in terms of retaining it for yourself and owning it for yourself, not just being able to not just be able to do it like when the instructor's there, but you can actually do it at home by yourself. Like when you have the when you have a less prescriptive set of instructions and you're given more freedom to experiment and do it, you know, different ways and find the groove that works best for your particular combination of attributes and you know, all of the rest of it. So that that basically leaves us with with not giving a lot of instruction to people. Yeah. Well, actually, it's funny. So in preparation <laughs> for this, I worked out with my trainer earlier today. Shout out to Greg from Fives in Brooklyn. Um, and I asked him because I was just curious. I don't know anything about personal training land. I was like, did they talk about tactile cueing like in your training? And he said very minimally. Um, and then we entered into this whole conversation where essentially the synthesis was, he was like, I, I never, I only spot people and I only touch them if I've literally tried every other possible cue and they're just like not getting it. And I need to like adjust their hips or something because I feel like it's dangerous. And I was like, yeah, I think that at this point that's, I live in that place as well. Um, especially when it comes to tactile cueing and Pilates, it's like, I try every, every other means possible, including like, I'll have clients tactile cue themselves. Like, I think that is actually a really potentially meaningful um, use of tactile cueing. There's only so many, I don't even know if you would call it tactile cueing. There's only so many instances where it works, but um, I think that that was more meaningful than me putting my hands on people for the most part. I'm going to draw a parallel here. 
um, on quite a deep philosophical level that when we, you know, we just talked through some of that literature about how when we give manual guidance, um, we end up improving performance in the short term, but not learning in the long term. So we don't actually empower the client to do it by themselves. We we only enable them to do it when we are basically doing it for them. And so they become reliant, you know, on that guidance in order to be like, they know how to do it with the guidance, but not without the guidance. And, you know, that leads to clients who like, oh, who say things like, oh, I can, I can't do it when I'm by myself. I need you here to help me and guide me and et cetera. Right. So basically a disempowered, you know, um, place. Now, dear listener, I don't want to tie you with a brush if you don't want to be tied with it. So feel free to opt out of uh, what I'm about to say here. Um, but my anecdotal experience in the Pilates world is that a lot of people suffer from imposter syndrome and a sense of like, I'm not good enough. And I, it just occurred to me as you were speaking a moment ago that maybe there's a, uh, there, there's a parallel between how we, you know, we guide our clients in ways with, with the best intentions and most care in the world to help them, but we end up sometimes disempowering them that in the same way, uh, in, in the Pilates, you know, education space in, and in just in the industry in general, again, with the best intentions in the world, we end up making our students, you know, like our Pilates instructor certification students, uh, you know, reliant on us and, you know, that un, feeling un, unable to, you know, come to their own conclusions or, you know, look stuff up for themselves or, you know, basically to, to, to uh, take their rightful place in the world and go, yeah, I don't really know my shit, um, you know, unless they have, you know, the, the protective guidance of some sort of higher authority. What do you think? I am flashing back to the cultural conversation we had about conversations we keep having. Um and yeah, I agree. I think that guru in the room, guruism in Pilates is very much a thing. And I actually, and I feel like the Pilates police are going to be very upset about this, but I think that potentially our historical attachment to tactile cueing as being such a quintessential part of how we teach and disseminate information might actually be tied to that sort of guruism sensibility. And what I mean by that is that do you think that we get very afraid as instructors of not being valuable anymore? Like it's like in, or a different way of thinking of that. It's like because of the incredible tactile cues that you offer to your clients, that's what you think is like keeping them coming back to you. And that's a part of what makes, that's why they can't do Pilates without you. That's why they're going to continue paying you for sessions. And I think there can be a lot of that mentality, um, especially in the sort of like elder Pilates land. Um, and that I agree, it does everyone a disservice because that's not true. And actually, maybe if you really, the flip side of that is like, maybe if you gave that up a little bit, like the, you'd be even more valuable because you would be teaching people how to be independent. Yeah. Hey, I want to talk about one instance uh, where I think, I'm not sure if you call it tactile cueing, but like ha hands-on, um, I think is 
valuable. Um, and that is in essentially like assisted stretching. So if I'm doing like, you know, in my own body, I'm very stiff and I stretch heaps, but I just, I really struggle to improve my flexibility. I mean, if I like, if I walk past a dumbbell, <laughs> I get stronger, you know, <laughs> don't even have to look at it. <laughs> but like, if I, if I stretch for an hour a week in a forward bend, I can still barely touch my toes. You know, it's like, it's just, it doesn't happen for me. Um, but what I find is because I'm stiff, but I'm also very strong, just my body weight alone often isn't enough to, like to get me into a stretch. So I can do a forward bend. I don't feel any stretch, right? But I just can't go any further, right? And this is because the tissue stiffness is such that it's like, it's, you know, it's just too stiff for me to actually get into a position where I can even feel a stretch. But if someone like pushes down on my low back when I'm in a seated forward bend, or if some if I'm doing like a spine stretch forward, someone like sits in front of me, puts their heels on my heels and like grabs my forearms and pulls, like I get an amazing stretch, right? And and you know, I so I think there's a real value for some people, you know, and I don't know how widespread this is, but for some people, people like me, um, I would pay somebody to like basically stretch me. We you know? we have that here <laughs> like, in the US actually. <laughs> You could do that. There's a, I forget what it's called. There's a like dynamic, you can go and have people pull your body for you. It's a thing. My in-laws have done it. It's very strange. Okay. <laughs> well, tell me about your experience. Um, well, okay. So when you were talking, um, it made me realize that I, I lied a little bit. It's not that I don't ever touch people. I just very rarely touch people now. And what you made me think is that the only occasions, and I feel like this is what I'm about to say is true, that I generally offer any type of tactile feedback is in a moment of opposition, as in like they need to get deeper into the stretch. And I like, and the, everyone I work with now, I know really well, um, like I'll pull their hands for them or something to help them get the sensation of a deeper stretch. But those are pretty much the only instances where I'm currently offering tactile feedback. So I do feel like that is. I do feel like that could be really valuable. Um, and for the sense of like relief and like overall, can't think of the right word, but yeah, just relief. Like I can, I can see that as a scenario that isn't, it's not even a, well, I guess it's different because it's not a situation where you're teaching somebody a movement necessarily. If you're talking about stretching somebody, you're facilitating opposition or, or weight, you know, you could arguably depending on the position, like, facilitate the same sensation of stretch if you used your dumbbell to like, you know, help you stretch or whatever. Right. Right. What uh, I'm thinking of when I used to practice Ashtanga yoga, which when you do it in Mysore style, which basically you go in and do your own practice. So you just practice through the sequence of moves up to wherever you're up to. Uh, and then the, 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 the yoga teacher, then they're, they're not leading the class and not saying, Hey everyone now do up dog, now do down dog. They just, there's no instruction they just walk around and when you're in a pose, they will actually like push you forwards or pull you backwards or twist you further. Like, And so they call it an adjustment. Um, but it, it's very rarely about technique in my experience. It's much more about, okay, I'm, you're now in this position. I'm going to take you way deeper than you could ever get 
you know, under your own power. And it's like you get into these positions like, holy crap, I never imagined I could get into this position. But it's only because someone's sitting on my back, you know, that's how I could get here. So that was, I think that was, you know, that was very powerful for me. I think it's, it's very powerful for a lot of people. Ashtanga Yoga is a very popular, you know, worldwide phenomenon. So I think that it, you know, put me in mind of that, what you said then. And also when I did my clinical placement as an exercise physiologist, I worked in uh, with some uh, fr- friends of mine who have an exercise physiology clinic, but exercise physiology, it's like, it's a four-year degree, but it's basically like you're a four-year degree qualified personal trainer, you know, like, so the things that you do with your clients are basically what a personal trainer does. You know, you do weights and stretching and <laughs> cardio and all of that stuff. And uh, they, at their clinic, they always ended with, you know, the the sessions with a stretch, right? So, and it was always a, a an assisted stretch, where the client had done it, just done all of his physical exercise, had done weights, had done, you know, cardio, they'd done all those things. And then it'd be like, okay, now lie down and I'm going to stretch you. So it'd be like, okay, lie on your back. I'm going to push down on one leg and push up on the other leg, give you a hamstring stretch. Now lie on your tummy. I'm going to push down on your bum and push down on, and bend your knee behind you, stretch your, 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 your hips, flexors. You know, now lie on your side. I'm going to put a push your hips one way and your shoulder the other way and twist you and rotate your spine there. So it's like, it was all of these stretches. And I was always thinking like, oh, gee, I wish I, I would pay to just have a whole session of this. <laughs> but it was kind of like the candy at the end of the session, the reward for working hard, where you, as the client, all you have to do there is just lie there and breathe and continue to sweat. And the instructor you know, basically just does everything for you. And that I think that really encapsulates both the, I think like, is that sort of stretching more valuable in terms of like making you more flexible than just like doing it yourself, probably not, right? But I think it it feels nice, and also I think there's that element that we talked about right at the start, which is like I'm not sure if it's a therapeutic touch as such, but it's like a, just a human connection, you know, where that person is touching you in a platonic and caring way, you know, to help you, and it's like that. That's a really kind of like. Um, it's almost like a ritual at the end of the session where it's like, you know, that that's part of what we do for each other. Like in Japanese martial arts where everyone's like sweeps the floor at the end of the session or sort of thing, you know, it's kind of like, I think it's a nice yeah, ritual. I, so too, I was thinking when you're talking, describing that, I was thinking about Thai massage. It's similar, just somebody like pulling your body parts for you. Um, and then. Uh, oh, is that what Thai yeah, massage but is? It's, but it's like in oh, partnership get one. though. So you're doing it for each other. So it's like you take turns basically, um, or at least in the Thai massage I've experienced. And it's amazing. It's incredible. I highly recommend it. Um, but the other thing I was thinking about when you were describing that scenario is I was recently talking to a friend of mine who is um, a pelvic floor PT. And she was, well, we were just, I was kind of asking her about her work and she was describing to me how minimally in her practice as a pelvic floor PT, she generally uses manual therapy. Um, and I was asking her about why, because pelvic floor PT, in my understanding, tends to be an environment where it's almost expected that there's going to be some type of manual therapy. Um, and she was explaining to me that she's like, she doesn't believe that that is actually always the case. And so she tends to do much more or as much as possible like movement re-education as possible before doing obviously it depends on what the condition is but um and what they're working on but I thought that that was really interesting because I didn't expect that to be true because of my pre-assumptions about pelvic floor PT um and what 
my friend also shared with me in this conversation is that the majority, in her opinion, she was saying that she feels like the majority of conditions, even when she does do manual therapy, it has so much more to do with the patient's belief about what the manual therapy is doing for them than it is the actual manual therapy that's making a difference. And in fact, it's the exercises that she's prescribing or having them do that help improve um, the issue, which I know is a little different than what you were just saying, but I thought it was an interesting parallel. Yeah. Well, I don't, you know, I don't know much about that particular sphere, but uh, I have read papers on manual therapy on like uh, neck and back pain and stuff. And that show that manual therapy, like, you know, someone cracking your back, cracking your neck or whatever, a chiropractor or a you know, physical therapist or whatever, um, does provide short-term pain relief. It's better than, you know, not um, getting it and about equivalent to doing exercise in the short term. But when you get a specific adjustment, like the chiropractor identifies that your, you know, left uh, L5 is, you know, counter-nutated or rock rotated or whatever, you know, and then, you know, specifically adjust that into the quote correct position versus when somebody just puts their hands on your low back and presses until it cracks, you know, it's like a more general, generic, you know, like what you, you, your kid comes up and does for you when you're lying on the ground that you go, oh, can you push down on my back until it cracks? And they go, okay, sure, dad. And then off they do it. It's like that works just as well, right? So whether it's a specific adjustment or whether it's a generic adjustment, you get the same degree of pain relief, which implies that what we're doing there is not specific to the biomechanics of some joint that we're changing. It's it's a more, it, it's you know, presumably affecting the central nervous system in some way that is, you know, triggering a reduced pain response and so yeah it doesn't that kind of fits with what you just said about the that you know the expectation of the manual therapy in the in pelvic health you know being more you know important than the, the specifics yeah i'm suggesting so so where do we land you know should should we issue a proclamation that everyone should stop touching their clients well maybe yes but um the one thing we also didn't really talk about which maybe we can go down this rabbit hole if you want to is that if you are going to touch your clients, I do think that there are, what's the right word, like ground rules for that? Or I don't know, in my teacher training, I'm, I feel like yours was similar. There was a lot of conversation about touch and if you are going to touch somebody, how you touch them. Um, do you have thoughts about that? Um, well, I mean, yeah, I do have thoughts about it, but it's they're really kind of, I haven't, I don't think about this topic a lot because I work 100% online now. I literally never, ever touch any of my clients ever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's just not a thing. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, I, I guess I haven't thought about this for a while. And I, but I guess my position, you know, which I'm open to changing because maybe you've thought about this more than I have recently. My position is, I think, uh, you know, I think it is important to get consent, but I think it's it's often uh, a little bit more challenging to get like genuine consent because there's kind of a social pressure. If you say to somebody, "Is it okay if I give you a cue here on the rib cage?" and you're just got in the middle of, middle of a class, well, it's kind of there's a kind of a social pressure for them to say yes to that, you know. Uh, and so I think something that I experienced a little while ago when I went for a massage, which I very rarely do, but you know, one one time I did, and uh, there was a, a on the intake form, they said, oh, "Do you prefer talking or non-talking?" 
right? And that's, I was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing because I freaking hate it when the massage therapist talks. Or it's like, I don't want to talk. You know, I would specifically seek out, seek out a massage practitioner, not based on their massage skill, but just based on the fact that they don't freaking talk to me while they're massaging. <laughs> um, same with, with barbers. Like, I would, oh, if I could just find a barber that doesn't talk, that would be amazing. Um, so, but I thought we could apply that to manual therapy or manual touch, right? So when you're doing an intake form for your Pilates studio, it would be like, okay, do you prefer to be touched or not touched, you know, when we're teaching class? And that's just a simple yes, no. And there's no social pressure there. There's not someone sitting over your shoulder, you know, who's potentially going to be offended if you say, no, I prefer not. And it's just an easy yes, no thing. Or it just be like a checkbox on your intake form online or whatever. Um, and I, so I think that's a nice little, you know, way to, to get a genuine you know, preference from somebody. Um, yeah, but I, that's kind of, that's probably like a three-year-old thought. I haven't really thought about it since then. <laughs> where, um, where are you at? Yeah, I think I relate to all those things. Um, I agree with you and think in a private one-on-one setting that the power dynamic, no matter how you try to invite your client into the conversation in terms of touch is always going to default to them feeling like they have to say yes to you. Um So that's something to think about. And the only time in my teaching life that I've had an experience that I felt like executed very well, people being able to communicate whether or not they wanted to be touched is I used to teach a really big group class for Equinox and they had these little stickers that were like different colors. And if you put one on your mat, it meant that you didn't want to be touched. And it was like a very easy way to differentiate of all the 30 people in the room, like who you were not touching. Um, and that gave, seemed like it gave students like the ability to be honest about what they wanted. Um, the only other thing that I think is potentially important is that if you are choosing to touch people, hopefully the obvious things like, you know, don't touch people in inappropriate places, but the difference between like full palm or versus like poking somebody with your fingers, I think is interesting. Um, I would dissuade people from poking people with their fingers if they like then you might as well just not tack help you would be my idea like if they're gonna poke their rib or something with your index finger like then you need to figure out a different way to give them that cue um because the tactile cue was not as important um yeah I think those are the only things I would really add yeah and I think um the you know the other kind of uh sort of thing about tactile king like you said at the start about it's a, a way that we as instructors can get information about what's going on with this person's body. But it's just, you know, like I said um, back at the start as well, like it's it's just not borne out in the evidence that we can actually perceive accurately, you know, what's going on. So it doesn't matter if you use your fingertips or your palms or your elbow, like you probably your fingertips are not much more accurate than you think your elbow is. Like when we look at, um, I talked about this recently in the episode on pelvic, uh, anterior pelvic tilt and other made up, dysfunctions that trained osteopaths have a 10 to 15 millimeter margin for error when they're palpating the PSIS. It's like, that is huge, you know, and these are people who do five years of college in specifically in manual therapy. And it's like, they're still like, you know, quite inaccurate. And so if we put out, you know, and I used to do this, put my, I put my like hands on the person's iliac crest and thumbs on the PSIS and go, okay, no, you're right pelvis is a little bit this or that or the other, guiding through the move. Oh, no, you need to count a new tape, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I was just totally making that shit up in my own mind. 
you know, and deluding myself about what I was feeling. My thumbs were probably like three centimeters, you know, up, you know, <laughs> different from each other. <laughs> and I just had no clue, but I thought I was really, really, you know, picking up all these fine nuances. I was being giving, oh, so contract your right transverse abdominis another 15%. Oh, that feels better now. You know, but I was just totally kidding myself. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm not really embarrassed. I think that's one of my, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I don't get easily embarrassed, <laughs> but I, I think it's an, it should, I should be embarrassed. <laughs> to I mean, I did it too. I was the person who was like, your right side rolled into the mat first. Like, what are you talking about? Like, you're rolling down the center of your spine and you're like, the right side touched before the left. Like, that was, I don't, maybe it did, but also I don't know why that's important anymore. Um, or why it was important then. I don't right. believe, I do not currently believe that that is as important as I once thought it was. Um, the. And, and here's the thing. Well, when I'm sorry to, you've taken me off on a little, another little tangent there now, but like, okay, so this idea of idea of perfect symmetry, like, okay, so you should do a roll down or whatever movement, you know, you sh- you're both sides of your spine, should, both sides of your back of your rib cage, whatever, should touch exactly evenly and equally. It's like, well, your body's not symmetrical. You've got a freaking massive liver on your right side and your heart's mostly on your left side. Your left lung's smaller than your right lung. Most of your intestines, like uh, your stomach's on the left. Like it's like you're just not, people are not symmetrical. You know, everybody has more muscle mass on their dominant arm and a thicker bone density on their dominant arm compared to their non-dominant arm. You know, we most of us have one foot bigger than the other, you know. A lot of us have, you know, according to Preset, our, again, from this um, anterior pelvic children, uh, other made-up dysfunctions episode a few weeks back, uh, we talked about uh, a lot of us have different sized innominates, the left and right half of your pelvis, like up to 12 millimeters difference in height in those two halves, like actual height, not tilt, but like the the height of the bone, you know, from um, ischial tuberosity to iliac crest up to 12 millimeters difference. So it's like, well, just say somebody's got a six or 10 millimeter difference in height of their iliac crest, and maybe they're, they're like the transverse processes on one side of the L5 are like half a centimeter longer than on the other side. And maybe their, you know, liver is, you know, on the big side and their stomach's on the small side. And like, so how, like, why should that person roll down perfectly evenly on both sides? I agree. And actually you're making me laugh because I think there was a point in time in my life where I, I was operating under the illusion of being symmetrical. Like my brain had, because of all of the information that I took in as a young dancer and Pilates practitioner, I think I got tricked into thinking that I had somehow like found symmetry um, like I felt that very clearly in my body. And now as an older person in my thirties, I'm like, I'm the most asymmetrical person ever. And I'm, I've started to think that actually that time in my life where I felt like everything was so symmetrical was potentially just me hyper focusing on it. And it was a mental illusion, not an actual, well, I guess there were also people, there were people in my world validating it, like t- Pilates teachers and stuff who were like, yes, your right leg is now so much more even with your left or, yeah. you know, you have a leg discrepancy, all this stuff. Yeah. And at this point, um, I have, I think it's, I think it was all an illusion. I don't think it was real. Oh yeah, I'm sure it was. Um, I mean, but it's funny how we, and we've kind of got off on a slightly different topic here, but I, it's, I'm, uh, I'm interested in just having a little bit of a chat about this, this idea of the illusion that, you know, symmetry is, is the the default 
And if there's asymmetry, then it's indicative of some kind of problem. So we think, oh, if our one ASIS is more forward than the other one, that's a problem. Or one shoulder is higher than the other one or whatever, you know, that's that's indicative of some kind of imbalance. But it's like, ah, well, take a, go cl- take a close look in the mirror. Like, are your eyes perfectly level? You know, is your nose perfectly straight? Is Are your ears exactly the same size? Like, when you, you know, talk, do you, does your mouth, like, lift more on one side than on the other side? When you sing, do you sing out one side of your face? Most people do. You know, like, is your hairline perfectly symmetrical from side to side? It's like, well, why the heck would you expect your collarbones to be symmetrical or your, you know, any other part of, you know, is your right, is your, is your dominant foot bigger than your non-dominant foot? Is the circumference of your thumb the same on both sides? I bet it's not for most of us. So it's like, if, like, if almost everything about us is not symmetrical to some small degree, it's like, why would we, you know, why, where do we get the notion that symmetry is the default situation? Yeah, that's a good question. And actually to add on to that idea, um, I think I'm, I'm thinking specifically about sports. There are so many sports, like high performance sports, where this sport requires you to be asymmetrical. So for like example, like golfing, surfing, baseball, there's probably more, even football, arguably, if you throw the ball with your same hand every time. It's like most of the things that high performance athletes, well, not all, but a lot of them are training for asymmetrical sports. Like why is, so it's a little bit weird that as a cultural value set, like symmetry is this thing that we're all striving for. I don't know what it is that we think that we get if we're symmetrical. Like, do you get a cookie or like, do you just live like a healthier, happier life? Like, I'm not sure. Like, if you reach symmetry, what happens? <laughs> I know. I was thinking about this when, again, when I talk about that pelvic uh, tilt episode, and just the definition of neutral pelvis is you know, in, in the textbooks, is the symphysis pubis and the ASIS aligned vertically, right? And so, you know, I just accepted that, you know, for the first five, six years that I'd heard it. And it's it's only, you know, after that, I started to think like, well, why would nature care in the slightest where the two arbitrary bony landmarks on your body are vertically aligned? It's like, what the fuck has that got to do with anything, you know, it's like it's just some totally arbitrary thing. It's like who who made that up? Based on what? It's like we've just got the we create these. I think as humans, we like to categorize things. There's nothing wrong with you know, like we like to you know, we like nice straight lines. I like to have my desk nice and tidy and all the, the calculator lined up, you know, parallel to the edge of the <laughs> desk mat. Okay, and you know, we like our color coded folder notes and and all the rest of it. And I, you know, I stick my hand up. I, I'm, I'm one of those people as well. But it's like that's not how nature necessarily is. Nature doesn't care if you're in straight lines, you know. And yeah, so it's just weird. We've we've created, I think, these completely arbitrary ideas about what constitutes ideal. That, as far as I can tell, are really not based on anything apart from, I don't know, just like it's sort of some sort of geometrical precision or, or, you know, or aesthetics? I'm not really sure. I'm not sure either, but the thought that just came to mind that is related to this and the sort of conversation around tactile cueing that led us here is that, and you've talked about this a lot, um, I've I've thought about it quite a bit, is that specifically in Pilates, um, especially like I don't know how to delineate the time frame, but older Pilates, like after Joe, 
when all the dancers took over and became elders, like whatever that time period is, we had this huge switch in our industry that went. I think it was the pioneer mythic. Like we had this huge switch where it was suddenly about aesthetics, how everything looks. Like if you read Return to Life, Joe Pilates never one time says anything about a movement and how it's supposed to look. He describes what you're supposed to do and the pace and all this stuff, but he's never like, you know, your fullest expression of teasers should have your legs at this angle and your arms should be straight and your shoulders should be down. Like that didn't come from there. Um, and so this weird, this weird uh, obsession with aesthetics, which really to me does come from the dance elders who influenced Pilates, which makes me think back to your point, like it's just the, the, the obsession with symmetry, specifically in our industry, I don't think it's actually because it's like, has anything to do with health or longevity or well-being i think it's purely like a artistic like i feel like dance put that into pilates somewhere and we should pick it out a little bit well you know i mean i i've got no problem with people you know aspiring to that uh, i like to look at dancers dancing um but yeah i think we i i agree with you that I think it's become t- conflated with, you know, like mixed up with the notion of you know, it must be more healthy or optimal biomechanically or, you know, somehow more efficient, uh, you know, or safe. Uh, and it's, it's none of those things. Um, it's just it's just an arbitrary standard that's, you know, possibly aesthetic and possibly, you know, to do with our – in Pilates, we tend to be slightly on the OCD side. Um and like straight lines. <laughs> yeah, but you know, you can work your hamstring even if your knees are not perfectly straight. Just saying, like you can still get a great stretch right. from the roll-up even if your legs aren't perfectly straight and your feet aren't perfectly flexed. Like there's, I, that's right. that's the point. And maybe actually, this is the idea I wanted to bring it to is that I think the premise of tactile cueing, hands-on, however you want to call it, as it was disseminated to me, came from a place of trying to help people make better shapes. That was that was why. It was because you could help their mm-hmm. bodies find a clear expression of the shape. And the switch for me now is I don't give a shit what your shape looks like. I just care that you are working what we want to be working. And that can look a lot of different ways. Um, and that while I... I do really appreciate aesthetics, like come from a dance background. I fall down the Instagram rabbit hole of admiring beautiful people as well. Um, That's not the thing that we do that makes us valuable. Like the how things look is not the thing that makes Pilates as a practice valuable to the people that are practicing it. And so if all of this is tied into why we're choosing to give somebody tactile feedback as opposed to actually just helping them learn something, like learn the movement, um, I think that I'm going to go ahead and say I think we should let tactile cueing go like a little more. Well, I was a bit shocked there until you softened that at the end by adding a little more. On the I end. mean, we should let it go, but um, a little more. Like if you're doing tactile cueing, you're not a bad person. You're still a great teacher. Just ask why. Like maybe try and do it less. See if you can get the same or even better movement outcomes from your clients without touching them all the time. Yeah, I guess I would. I th- I'm pretty. You know, I feel like we're pretty much in agreement on this. But I guess I would. I would say it slightly differently. I would say, you know, if you're trying to help your students learn and get better and more empowered in their movement, like don't tactile cue them. But I think there's a real place for touching, 
whether that's in a sort of stretch at the end or a, a, a literal sort of hug, arm on the shoulder, you know, whatever it might be, um, that has a social value, not necessarily a, you know, motor skill. Well, certainly not a motor skill value. But, uh, yeah, I don't think we should throw the the baby out with the bathwater. I, I think there is a value in touch. But like you, like you said also, though, I think there is also a – there's a – there's, it's probably a good plan to seek permission or just ask people's preferences in a in a way where they feel no pressure to say yes or no, and they can express their genuine preference. And then if they want it, yeah, great, give them a stretch at the end or yeah, or whatever. I think you said it better. That was a nice synthesis, but I agree. All right, good good talk. Thanks for it. Thanks, Ra. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.